1: Columbia University Press has just released a new translation of a work by philosopher Alexandre Kojev, simply titled Atheism, and translated by Professor Jeff Love. Considered to be one of the 20th century's most brilliant and unconventional thinkers, Kojev was a Russian emigre to France whose lectures on Hegel in the 1930s galvanized a generation of French intellectuals. Although Kojev wrote a great deal, he published very little in his lifetime, and so the ongoing rediscovery of his work continues to present new challenges to philosophy and political theory. Written in 1931 but left unfinished, Atheism is an erudite and open-ended exploration of profound questions of estrangement, death, suicide, and the infinite that demonstrates the range and provocative power of Kojev's thought. Ranging across Heidegger, Buddhism, Christianity, German idealism, Russian literature, and mathematics, Kojev advances a novel argument about freedom and authority. He investigates the possibility that there is not any vantage point or source of authority, including philosophy, science, or God, that is outside or beyond politics and the world as we experience it. The question becomes whether atheism or theism is even a meaningful position, since both affirmation and denial of God's existence imply a knowledge that seems clearly outside our capacities. Masterfully translated by Jeff Love, this book offers a striking new perspective on Kojev's work and its implications for theism, atheism, politics, and freedom. Jeff Love is research professor of German and Russian at Clemson University in South Carolina. His publications include books on Tolstoy, Heidegger, Nietzsche, and Dostoevsky, as well as a translation of Frederick Schelling's Philosophical Investigations into the Essence of Human Freedom. He joins me today to talk about Kuzhev's atheism. Hello, my name's Carrie Lynn Evans, and you're listening to New Books in Secularism, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. Today, my guest is Professor Jeff Love, who's agreed to talk with us about his new translation of Alexandre Kojev's 1930s work on atheism. So, Jeff, thank you so much for joining us.
2: Thank you for having me.
1: First, I want to start by asking you a bit about yourself and how you eventually became a translator of philosophy, because I understand you started out with corporate law in Canada and then took a detour into Russian literature, and this isn't the usual bio we get to hear about on this channel, so please do tell us your story.
2: (laughs) It's an aleatory story, I suppose. I'm on my third country now. Uh, since I uh, lived in Canada for 30 years, 20 years in the U.S., and I've been here for in, in Lisbon and Portugal now for, I think, three years. Uh, but uh, you're correct. I was a, Actually, I was a philosophy major in undergrad, uh, and my father, being a good Scotsman, thought that that was a career that was destined to get me absolutely nowhere. So I managed to convince him to be nice with me and to talk with me by becoming a lawyer. I never really wanted to be a lawyer, and I was corrupted uh, in my third year of undergrad when I read... Uh, uh, war and Peace. On just, I don't really know why, but I, I read it. I stayed up for basically a week, and read the whole thing, and uh, thought that uh, someday I might uh, might be able to do something different than to be a lawyer. And I worked for a very big law firm in Toronto, uh, about four hundred lawyers, uh, very interesting people, but I didn't like it at all. Never liked it. And like so many of the people I worked with, I wanted to have I wanted to do something different, and luckily, I managed to. It was a rather unusual thing to move to to, to, to study Russian literature, and I went down to the states to study Russian literature in New Haven. Uh, I worked for a number of years as a professor. Well, actually, I went to, got a job that uh, because there weren't, there weren't a lot of jobs in that area, uh, in a German-Russian department, and I also ha- happened to speak German because when I was a lawyer, I, le- I had learned German and I'd worked in Berlin a lot. and it's a complicated story, better not to talk about. And, um, but so I worked in both those areas in the States and translated, a uh, uh, well, I did a different thing. I did two monographs on Tolstoy. I translated a, a, a really fascinating monograph by, uh, Schelling with a colleague of mine. And then I moved sort of onto uh Russian philosophy, more Russian philosophy, particularly so uh, and then I met this Portuguese writer years ago. Uh, the, the very he's a very important novelist, Antonio Lobo Antunes. We got along very well. He invited me here, and I still have a research position at, uh, at my university. But uh, I now uh, work full time here, and I work with him. So there you go. Too many words for uh, for a sort of uh, funny path through different uh, languages and uh, different uh, uh, disciplines, if you like.
1: Ah, no, that's great. So maybe next tell us how you came to write this particular book.
2: Well, um as you know, Kozhev is a pretty fascina- fascinating figure, should I should I give a little bit of background just on Certainly. Put the book into okay, because Kozhev is a I mean he he's a figure who out of some sort of romantic novel because um he was born in 1902, died in 1968 and had uh, many career changes, one might say. He um was born into a very, very, uh, uh, I guess, a family of the high bourgeoisie in Moscow. His uncle was the painter, Vasily Kandinsky. Um, He uh, fled Russia in 19, or the Soviet Union then, in in 1920. He'd been imprisoned in 1918 uh, for selling things in the black market, so forth and so on. He didn't see much of a future for himself in the Soviet Union, so he fled, uh, went to Germany and lived in Berlin. He had taken I don't know uh, how many apparently his mother's jewels and sold them on the uh, and sold them in Germany and invested in uh, the famous company you know Lavashkiri the, the cheese makers and he made a great deal of money there and he made it and he lived a very high life in Berlin for a number of years uh, but it was a interesting it was a interesting fellow because he went finally to Heidelberg and he went to study uh, he studied uh, very eclectic very interesting he studied uh, uh, Oriental religions. A Sanskrit, Tibetan, and uh, Chinese, uh, as well as philosophy uh, proper. Uh, he end, ended up uh, going back to Berlin. Then he went back to Heidelberg, got his PhD uh, on, he wrote it on a Russian philosopher, um, and he got that PhD with uh, under Karl Jaspers. Then he moved to Paris. And when the French stock, he lived in 1926, that is. When the French stock market collapsed in thirty one. he didn't really have much to do. Uh, he had uh, spent time learning quantum about math, modern mathematics and quantum physics, but between 1927 and 1929. So this is a guy, for just in the twenties, who showed this tremendous interest for Eastern languages, for Buddhism, for Taoism, studied all those uh, a, a number of different reli- uh, well religions of the of the East, as well as quantum physics. He ended up writing a 300-page dissertation or treatise on quantum physics, which is very very interesting, very good. Uh, was accepted by the Sorbonne, um, but he also showed a pronounced interest in Russian religious philosophy. Uh, and he met a friend, a very famous uh, Russian, Alexander Kouaret in Berlin. It's a great anecdote, but I won't tell it because it's a bit salacious too. Uh, anyhow, they got, they got along well. Uh, and uh, Kouaret was going to Cairo in 1933. So Kojev uh, took over uh, Kouaret's course on the religious f- philosophy of Hegel. Uh, and that course he took over, he ended up keeping uh, from 1933 to 1939, and uh, it's a, he it's a, he mesmerized a generation of French intellectuals uh, by his lectures on Hegel's Phenomenology, and it made him very 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 famous uh, and very very influential. You can imagine Georges Bataille, Maurice Merleau Ponty, Jacques Lacan. Uh, Raymond Aron, it's a who's who of the French intellectual culture of the interwar period, who were his students who were mesmerized by the, by him and uh, and by all I mean by all accounts he had a he was a very charismatic human being. He did various things during the war, probably worked in intelligence services, maybe for various sides, who knows. Um but after the war, he didn't want to return to teaching his seminar, and one of his old students who was uh, Robert Marjolin was very powerful in the french uh, government hired him on to be a, a advisor in the ministry of in one of the economics uh, ministries of economic finances pardon me and and, and Kozhev, after the war exerted this enormous influence in the ministry of finances in the french government uh he is one of the architects of the uh, european community of the actually of the the, the founding treaty of the european community and there are anecdotes about uh, this part of his career, which lasted until he died in sixty-eight, in the midst of a speech in Brussels. Uh, they, they they abound. Uh, for example, he negotiated GATT. Here is your philosopher, your religious philosopher, your uh, a man interested in quantum physics in east in Eastern languages, who was, becomes a master negotiator of GATT. And one of um his uh, uh, one of his uh, students told me this funny story, which and I'll get to the point just after this, but it's a, a classic Courchave story. So they're meeting, they're having a large meeting of the various delegations to discuss details of the GATT Treaty. The Germans come in, they've got 10, 15 assistants. Uh, English have a, are, a, well, a group, all the different people have uh, staff, and a number of uh, underlings and so on and so forth. And there's Kojev by himself with a few cards representing France. <laughs> and of course, he had a fantastic memory. So he ran everything with just these few cards and uh, you can imagine the effect that it created on his uh, <laughs> on the other parties. And this was typical. He was feared. Uh, he intimidated everyone. He was ma- he's incredibly inventive with arguments and and had a by all accounts. Raymond Aron, for example, who knew Sartre, who knew a number of other uh, all the all the all the the stars of that era, said the most intelligent man he ever met was Alexander Kuznetsov. So let me go back into the '30s just to introduce this. I got interested because. One thing I haven't mentioned is Kozhev only published well, he didn't he barely published anything in his lifetime. Um, the book that he became well known for, uh, which was the Hegel lectures, was published after the war by one of his students and at the behest of one of his students, as was a later book. He didn't publish and didn't like to publish very much, and he left an enormous number of things behind. One of these was atheism, what the book came from. it's uh it's uh, it was a manuscript that he wrote in nineteen thirty one. And it's uh, unfinished piece of work, obviously. It seems to have changed while he was writing it. But it's just, a f- I just came across the French translation of it and got fascinated by it and wanted to go back to the original Russian. And I noticed the original Russian was different and there were parts that were, not, uh, that were uh, done a bit differently in the French and some parts that, were, that seemed to have been dropped uh, in, uh, in the Russian transcription of the text. Uh, that was there was an official Russian transcription as well, so I just went back and 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 I think it's a r- remarkable argument. So uh, that's how I came to it. I also wrote a monograph on Tolstoy, uh, on, on Um So this was part of that bigger project that covers a lot of Kozhev's, uh thinking and, and covers most of his career and particularly some of the Russian roots of his thinking. And this particular document fit into that very very nicely because it's a uh, it's it for one thing it's written in Russian. And it's written in an interesting Russian, and it has uh, it has classic Russian themes uh, that are cliched Russian themes of the God haunted Russian uh, uh, intelligentsia. So that's sorry, it was a bit long, but that's no, that's, awesome.
1: that's fascinating. Yeah, um, so I take it this is the first English translation ever that's of correct. this work. Okay,
2: wow, and it's the most complete. I mean, it, there's another one in Italian. But it is, it is in general it's the most complete of all of them because there are parts that were dropped in some of the and the manuscript is, is it's, it's very hard to read. his handwriting is atrocious, so I understand and sympathize with anyone who had to read read it and go through the, the manuscript with changes and things of that nature. so it purports and I think is an attempt to be the fullest and completest translation in any language right now.
1: What a fascinating character, Wow, oh. and you were working from handwritten. Material. Yeah.
2: Oh, yikes. yeah. And his, his handwriting is like looking at the uh, a squiggle.
1: <laughs> oh, my goodness. Okay. Well, let's turn to the article itself. Uh, and we'll start with the basics. For the sake of his analysis, how does Kojev define God, the atheist and the theist?
2: Okay. I, I think was the, the central thing to come to, first of all, is obviously Kojève realized that if you're going to talk about atheism, you have to talk about theism and you have to talk about God. First of all, and the first, first great question he asks is: is, is I mean, he does ask whether you can ever? The guiding question he starts out with is: Can you have an atheistic religion? And he uses Buddhism as an example, but he suggests that that he that's the, the the extent that that's the extensive guiding line of the entire treatise. Can you to, to explore the idea of an atheistic religion? The background to that is is probably Heidegger, but we can come to that later. Um, but in terms of God, yes, the crucial. Crucial and what's fascinating is a philosophical attitude towards God. It's not looking at the theological uh, conception of the personalized God or something of that nature. It's a very, it's a, it's a very detached idea of, of of looking at what God can be, and he separates out two notions of, uh, well, two notions of God, uh, and two different kinds of believers, or he calls theists, and uses an awkward term. One is a qualified theist, and another is unqualified. So someone could say, "Well, what does that mean?" What he means is a theist who, when he says an unqualified theist, a theist who believes in a, a notion of of a god that is simply an is. There's no predicates that you can apply to that kind of god. Uh, there's no uh, no uh, human uh, descriptions that could be applied to that god. It's simply uh, that the that sort of theist at it. At the most basic level, says God, simply is. Can't identify what God what God is, but God is. So he calls that the unqualified theist. The other theist is the qualified theist, who gives an identity to God. God is a what of some kind. Um, That which means that certain predicates apply to God. God can be great. God can be this, or God could be powerful, as you know, all powerful. And then Kojève asks, well, if God is going to, if if we can apply certain Predicates to God. In what way can we do so? It's you know, uh, and, and that's a that's of course a tremendous question. Uh, and these are these are as you as you are well aware fundamental questions of the identity of God, because as you know, uh, if you go back to the Middle Ages, there's the three different kinds of ways of looking at God. Talk. You could talk about God by analogy. There's some, somehow you can talk. You can use a predicate, and you can, it can be an in, 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 uh, that refers to a human state of affairs, and can be used analogously of God. This would be Aquinas' position. There's equivocal predicates, which can be applied to God in one way and human beings in another. And there's uh, univocal predicates, which means, say, being. Uh, this is a famous thesis of Duns Scotus, uh, that being somehow is uh, shared by God and human beings, but in a, it, it's, it's a, there's a different intensity. Uh, In other words, God is, uh, to put it really crudely, you could say infinitely more being than us, or there's a different intensity of that. Kojev alludes to all those sorts of things just by talking about the theists, these two different kinds of theism, which gives you a sense of the economy of the treatise and how erudite he is and how lightly he moves with his erudition. Of course, opposed to these two theists is the atheist. Uh, But that's the first setup. It's a question about what exactly god can be how can we possibly talk about god or can we talk about god and these two different entities that talk about god first the theist who's the the unqualified theist and the qualified theist and then of course the other entity will emerge is the uh atheist anyhow i I hope that gives uh, some is is, uh, well starts us out anyway with your question
1: yeah, it does. Um, and you mentioned that he uses the device of two characters with opposing views, one an atheist and the other a theist, um, in order to elaborate on the logical consequences mm-hmm. of the seemingly contrasting worldviews, which I think you conc- or he concludes are not as contrasting as they may appear. So what do we learn from this exercise?
2: Okay, well, I, what he does, what he'll now do is, is quite fascinating. And he, he'll develop... Uh, to, to try to explain, I mean, the, the questions you come across, first of all, are how do you, if you have the theist, the so-called unqualified theist, who simply says God is, without any predicate applying to it, how do you differentiate that theist from the atheist? Because if you can't say what God is, uh, you can just say God is, how do you differentiate that really from saying that God is nothing? God is, or God, or or how do you how do you say you can't even give a predicate of God is nothing or God is. But how do you how do you differentiate the position of the unqualified theist from the atheist? And the same applies to the qualified theist. If the qualified theist says that God has certain human qualities or qualities that we can extrapolate from our own experience to God, is God still God? Is God? And underneath this, the real question that you'll come to is: Is God completely transcendent? such that you can simply, the only difference between the believer and the non-believer is the believer says there's a God and the non-believer says there's not. <laughs> but but rationally, you can't make, it's hard to make the distinction, okay? So that's a, no, a completely transcendent God, a God who would virtually be the same as nothing. And this is no idle matter because, in fact, you'll have a school of thought going from Luther and Hegel who says that Luther already declared I mean, uh, Mark Taylor says this in one of his books that Luther declares already in one of his uh, 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 songs uh, or hymns that God is dead because, in a sense, that God is so infinitely distant from us, or so distant that it's hard to make the distinction between if well, the distinction between whether God is or is not is a difficult one, or is it even relevant? Okay, so you have that, then you have the question of if the if you have God too personalized, is it still God, and so you have this identity issue now Kojève does its fasting so you have the transcendent idea, and then you have the idea of God being somehow imminent in the world or somehow with us, somehow fitting and the atheist and so the develop what he develops to differentiate or to work out this problem or to, to set up a series of experiments is this notion of what he calls the human being in the world and the human being outside the world. Now, what's really fascinating is here is, first of all, he sets up an outside. He says both a theist and the atheist posit some sort of outside, whether it be the God who's completely transcendent or a God who's sort of super great being, something something, somehow differentiable from a human being in intensity uh, or of something of that notion. And the atheist has to do the same thing. Because the atheist has to has to say, in some sense, to be an atheist, that there is no God. So the atheist has to say, outside of the world, there is nothing. Both the atheist and the theist, or either kind of theist, have to posit some outside, and that's where he uses this wonderful device: this human being in the world and the human being outside the world. There's two heroes for the while he says uh, the and and then he develops his 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 argument a bit further from that i don't want to anticipate too much because i i i've talked too long already so <laughs> uh, uh maybe you can uh if you want to jump in there and 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 ask a question or, or
1: yeah well my next question has to do with bringing in heidegger um uh i guess as i'm following along with your uh explanation um he seems to be suggesting that the atheist, in a sense, has to make his own decisions about defining uh, defining the terms of what a God would be before, um, before asserting that he doesn't believe in it. Well, uh, in a, in a yeah. sense, making some of the same assumptions that the theist does.
2: Oh, yes. Well, I mean, I think that the primary... Well, there's two things where Heidegger comes in clearly. Obviously... Uh, the guiding thread uh, I mentioned earlier when I said, is there an atheist religion? is a snipe at Heidegger. In the okay. Sense of Heidegger creating a religion of being. Uh, and uh, Kozhev wouldn't be the, the first to make uh, uh, that comment, but there's a notion that Heidegger, and, and of course Kozhev would claim that Heidegger is a, what he would call a theistic atheist, uh, meaning that uh, Heidegger does not, Put, for Heidegger, there's something that's always, that always outside of what we, where we are at a, a given moment, or outside or there's a certain, some, a surfeit of possibility, a, sur, a possibility of whatever have you, he's always positing something outside um, and um, so for Kochev uh, I think there's this, this notion that Heidegger has it's a common notion that there's some that Heidegger has, has Sort of created a negative deity, or a, 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 a sort of something that's very similar, or, per, or performs the same function of the deity, uh, but is not a deity in the sense that doesn't have all the afflatus of the Christian religion, and so on and so forth. So he he's one of the main things he's exploring is that position in terms of what as an atheist and is an atheist is an atheist a, a non-believer or a believer in something. And in terms of where the atheists come from, first of all, as you noted, Korshev says, yes, obviously to be make sense of theis, atheism, you have to understand what the, the what the privative is about. So you're saying same, your alpha privative is saying, ah, theist, theism. You have to understand what the theism is to understand what's being negated, first of all. So you're quite, that makes, obviously that's per, that makes perfect sense. And then he wants to explore the commitments the atheist makes and how you differentiate those commitments from those of the theist. I'm sorry if that was unclear. I'll be happy to clarify. But.
1: No, no, that does make it clear. Um, is there any other extent
2: to which he interacts with Heidegger, or does that pretty much cover it? Uh, I think Heidegger is uh, the main uh, interlocutor throughout the entire treatise. And it becomes particularly evident in his, of course, he uses a lot of language derived from phenomenology uh, uh, in the treatise um and he talks about the, the notion of interaction that we're always interacting in the world he talks about world i mean the human being for example just the term the human being in the world is so evidently uh, a sort of ironic uh, uh gloss on heidegger's uh, in der welt sein or in, being in the world and uh instead of calling it dasein which heidegger uses the term to be gender neutral uh, uh, or and not really to indicate a kind of a, a, anthor- a, 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 a you know, it's not a, a a human being in the world. Kozhev makes it very evidently a human being. Uh, Kozhev anthropolog- is, is more anthropological than Heidegger would want to be. And in fact, Heidegger, when he read Kozhev's lectures later on, on Hegel had that complaint, said, oh, he's terribly anthropological. And Heidegger didn't like that perspective, but that's a, a side, uh, just a side. But so he uses terms that are clearly derived from Heidegger. He starts his discussion. Sure, he's talking about the it's it's framed within theism and atheism, but uh, when he talks about interaction, that the fact we're always interacting in the world, he says that the estrangement doesn't come from interacting in the world. Estrangement is another Heideggerian term. He uses the words uh, horror and terror, which are which are derived from Heidegger, and they're derived from Heidegger's uh, famous uh, uh, talk given in uh, July of 1929 called uh, "What Is Metaphysics," Uh, where he talks about angst. And the, uh, the the as being different than fear, fear having a specific object, angst is not having an object, terrifying. Well, that is all clearly fits in within the middle part of the argument, that treatise, where he talks about interaction, um, terror, and uh, moves to death. And his discussion of death is very, very evidently also tied to Heidegger, because Kojève, and he says this elsewhere, believes that you know one of the great things that Heidegger did was to talk openly about death philosophers had not tended to talk quite so openly about death, uh, though Plato obviously does, but in the way that Heidegger uh, uh, does. Uh, And so um, Heidegger is in that, uh, or to that extent, is sort of everywhere present in the treatise as an interlocutor and as a sparring partner.
1: You mentioned that he explains uh notions of interaction homogeneity and estrangement and you already mentioned interaction and estrangement there but uh was is there more that you can tell us about these terms or about homogeneity
2: well yeah i think he he, with interaction is first thing he's he he wants to to imply well they're very important because interaction is his way of saying we're always dealing with things in the world and he says that uh uh, he wants to argue against, uh, or he wants to say that we're comfortable in the world, that we're always sort of working in the world, and that uh, when we see other people in the world, when we see objects, uh, they comfort us in the world, and, and uh, we feel a certain relation to those things, which he calls homogeneity, really. What is not, uh, when, he, when he refers to estrangement or something of like that, he's talking about the introduction of something that doesn't fit, that we can't interact with in, in, in our typical ways of interaction. And he will move very quickly from the discussion of uh, of um, things that we get work on get along with very well to things that terrify us, which ultimately leads to his I think probably the most fascinating part of the entire uh, uh, essay, if you like, or treatise, whatever it is. Um, he uses different terms. Uh, is the discussion of death, and the, what he does also is he's connecting explicitly the notion of God with death, because what he is a very Epicurean move here. He says it's not, it's God is not comforting, it's God that is terrifying. God is, and to think of the outside to the world, which would be God, remember, uh, uh, or the nothing for the atheist, is what is truly terrifying, truly estranging. It introduces something to us that uh, we don't know how to interact with. Uh, And of course, the connection with death is fundamental in the entire treatise. Death as something that we do not know how to interact with. Uh, Of course, that's a very Heideggerian notion as well. uh, But his way of developing that and his connecting of uh, our notions of God with death is something Heidegger doesn't do quite so explicitly. Because Heidegger never does really anything terribly explicitly anyway.
0: This episode is brought to you by Shopify.
1: Yeah, and so he Kojev discusses his thoughts on death at some length, and uh, the challenge is posed by the circumstance that one cannot experience their own state of being dead, uh, as you say. But he felt as well that, um, uh, because a lot of Christians will tell you that they find comfort in the idea that they will have eternal life after death. And so, so his view was that underlying that, they really were experiencing terror?
2: Well, I think what he'll say is this, first of all, if I could preface it, one of Kozhev's, I think, most remarkable statements, I've always found it so interesting, and it's very powerful, as he says in a, a little treatise he wrote after the war, resurrection, the only serious theological mistake of Christianity. And uh, that is tells you a lot about how Kozhev thinks, in the sense that, and he's thinking in a long tradition, um, in fact, I was just having discussion with a Israeli Israeli scholar the other night. We were talking about Job. And famously, as you know, in the book of Job, they have this portion at the end, which we call the reward portion. Job en- endures all these terrible evils only to be rewarded in the end. Uh, and there's this whole sense that you have that you also have in the notion of resurrection, that one lives and one prepares themselves to die with the notion of some sort of reward. Uh, for Courgev, uh, he thinks, he says that's a mistake. And where that works into the treatise in an interesting way is of course, he does, the, the, the first thing he moves at, and I think it's, a it's. I had many students who, I used to love doing this, especially in the South and the States. I'd say, I'd start a class by saying, how many of y'all want to die? And I have a class <laughs> of 35 students, 27 put their arms up and say, me? I want to die. So what do you want to die? Uh well, uh why don't you? You know, it's of course it's baiting, but if if you're so eager to to achieve your eternal life, why don't you just die now? Well, some student would say, some naive student would say, "Well, I can't because I can't commit suicide, so I got to wait." You know? <laughs> like
1: really? I I'm amazed that 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 the response would be quite that extreme. Oh, yeah, it was I it take... was it, it wow. stunned me.
2: It really did stun yeah. me. And I would ask, uh, and they would say they were very excited, looking forward to the uh, their 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 death. And in fact, I can give a better, another, even more amusing story, though it's a pretty dark story. I was at uh, uh, in um, a hospital in South Carolina as well, in a cancer ward, and there were a bunch. There were five gentlemen there, all who had uh, spouses or or friends who were being treated for cancer, Uh, and then they started talking about the rapture. Now I was sitting there um, and and listening. They talk about the rapture, how they were going to be reunited with their families, with their loved ones, uh, in this grand uh, in this grand uh, moment of uh, completion, completion of time, uh, which they referred to as the rapture. This sort of apocalyptic view, and they were, I mean, please don't get me wrong. I'm not criticizing. I'm not, and nor am I taking a condescending view. What was astonishing was how powerfully these people believed in that. And, and wanted that rapture, which meant the apocalyptic end of our world to come about so that they could return to their relatives and all those who had, who had died. Uh, it was a remarkable thing to listen to because they were sincere. Uh, they were very, very, you know, these were people going through a lot of pain with people very close to them. And it was for me, it was it was stunning. And it reminded me of how these students felt. So to take it back to Kozhev, Kozhev doing something that I think anyone can do. Anyone, can sit, anyone can, can sit down and think, what would it be like not to be here? What would it be like to be dead? And in a sense, that's what's going on in this treatise. These, when he talks about this human being outside the world, and he differentiates two different kinds, he's asking that. Because after all, death is not, how is death in the world? If I die, and, 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 and Kojev makes this presumption, just for the sake of argument, how can I imagine myself as not being, of course? And what is it not to be? What is it to die? What or is it not? No, obviously, you could stay with relatives and people that you, that you know who have died. They're not here anymore. Of course, then someone will argue, yes, they are. They're here. Are there are pictures and so on and so forth. But physically, uh, they're not there. Well, let's just say they're not there. They're absent. What is that absence? what is that absence from here that is there so when kozhev discusses it in this nice framework if you like the, the, the theist as the one the theist is the human being in the world who imagines himself or herself as outside the world the atheist is the human being in the world who imagines not who can't imagine himself or herself outside the world cannot imagine any outside other than being an absence of being here in the world so the vast difference Kojève identifies, first of all, is that the theist says that there's some kind of me that is out there that's going to live outside the world. It'll live in God, it'll live as a soul. I'm not sure. But that's how he, he begins to, to, to look at that. Uh, as, as, and it's a simple, it's a very simple structure. But it's very uh, powerful because it puts the question of what is it to be outside? Now, another question you can ask and I used to ask my students, same thing, because they all want to die. They're all very excited to die. And so I said, so, so where do you go? And they say, well, well Jesus, Dr. Love, because that's what they'll say in the South. You know where we're going to go, hopefully for good. Uh, and some of them thought they were already saved, which is a bit arrogant. Uh, and they, they're going you know, to go to heaven. And I said, okay, well, uh, so tell me, what is this heaven that you'll go to? And it was always fascinating because nobody could give me an answer. Uh, other than some sort of uh i suppose golf club populated by white people uh with nice nice clothing and, uh, <laughs> oh my uh, no i'm i'm not joking you you well I, I,
1: no 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 i i i know you're serious <laughs> i'm am just
2: amazed but i i i i, I would ask, so i said that's what you well you, you so you, you spend eternity in a golf club singing songs or being nice uh or doing something like, and of course now with the good place all that's ruined because I can't talk about this sort of stuff. But uh, it was, so I say, so you, you're you 60 years old, you're suffering terribly, and you've lived your entire life to go to this place that you can't really, you don't really even have a clear sense of where you're going. What does that say? So um, uh, not to belabor the point, but what I think is really fascinating about is when we come down to the question of death, uh, the person who projects an image outside uh, uh, the world uh, as opposed to the person which is the theist, as opposed to the person who doesn't project an image of, uh, of themselves outside the world, brings it to very strong relief the thing the basic issue that's that's at what is that issue? Uh, what is this projection? What kind of life do what does one imagine in this afterlife? Why would one want that? what we, why does we somehow create something outside the world as the theist would do? And on the, con- the converse is the atheist, what is it to imagine oneself as ending for good, as never being, as, as the beyond being nothing but an empty space? Now, if you are alone at one night looking out and you think of those, those possibilities, it's quite terrifying, I think. Uh, so when he talks about fear and terror, uh, the fear and terror that death brings, uh, I think he's he, he applies it both to obviously, to to anyone, to the atheist and the theist, and sees in them different responses, obviously, to how to respond to death. He doesn't judge which one is better, which one is worse, but he puts that out. And what's interesting there above that is that for the theist, how do you explain the concept of this God that holds the human being in the future? What is it? If you can't describe this God, you can't, describe, or if they describe as God as sort of a super being, like something out of a, a science fiction, uh, what are you indeed doing? So I think he puts those questions, a number of, a constellation of questions, uh, or he organizes them in a very effective way uh, under, uh, and, and, and he associates the question about God, about theism and atheism, about religion, as of course everyone has done, Melville says famously, "Religion is born uh, like a like a hyena howling near the grave," uh, which is from Chateaubriand. Said the same thing. Franz Rosenzweig, the great, uh, the, the first line of his book is all thought about uh, the, his book. He's called the uh, the Star of Redemption, uh, a famous book written around the same time. Actually, that uh, all thought about the whole about God is based in fear of death. So. Khrushchev very effectively winds together these threads, and shows what uh, and shows and shows that that death is is rips us out of this world, uh, out of our world of everyday interactions, and is always sort of there, and that the theist in fact does one thing by sort of turning death into something that is more or less similar to what we exist, to what we have in the world, and the atheist doesn't do that. Sorry, no, no. (laughs) Just
1: so am I. We better not stumble over our apologizing to each other. Um, But let's uh, let's move on to uh, some even more cheery stuff uh, because Kajev addresses um, suicide, and he has a fairly radical position on suicide, characterizing it as the highest expression of freedom and the ultimate confrontation with death. Um, And once again, it highlights different perspectives on reality posed by the atheist and the theist. So could you tell us about that? Yes.
2: I mean, he mentions this. uh, This is a theme that he talks about in numerous places. In atheism, the particular treatise, he's he's rather more ginger with it. He has a test of freedom. He says, I show myself, I can believe, believe myself to be free, knowing that I could commit suicide, but I don't. And he says, this is the sort of test to show that I'm free because I know I could commit a suicide, but I don't. And then he says in a note that, well, nobody would really take this seriously. But other, in other response, he's a bit, more, a bit more blunt about it. Uh, and, and I will get to that in a moment. But there's a history to this in Russian thinking. And it goes back to Fyodor Dostoevsky, the great Russian novelist, and uh, in particular to a character in one of his novels called Demons. The character is uh, named Alexei Nilich Kirillov. Nielich, of course, being a sort of play on nihilism, and, uh, Niel- and Kirillov is, is one of these fantastic Dostoevskyan characters that only exist in Dostoevsky and Russian literature. Who is an engineer of suicide, and he's planning suicide, and his whole existence is built around committing this uh, suicide as his act of becoming God, because he says once uh, the, the fraud will be realized. Once uh, he commits suicide, he will be rid of the pain and fear that we call God. God is the representation of human pain and fear. So we create a God to, uh, to, uh, to I suppose, uh, as, as some horrible, uh, well, in Kozhev, God is a figuration of death too. Uh, and in, in that is a sort of illusion to this character in Dostoevsky, who, by the way, has a very hard time committing suicide uh and and that brings brings me to the bigger point Kojève is getting at and i think it's very interesting and worthy of thinking about uh he puts things polemically he likes to do that he was always a provocateur he uh enjoyed uh putting on his french interlocutors and knew how to work with them very well as i said he was a very seductive personality i think he was a guy he's the kind of person who could charm just about anyone uh and his argument is this however uh, and it's an argument against what we might call bourgeois freedom, the freedom to, uh, uh, of self-interest. Uh, the, if you look at the the, the, the the modern, I guess, early modern English philosophy, someone like Hobbes, the idea that society is formed in order to free us of the fear of violent death. Uh, nothing could be a more selfish or self-oriented aim than to be freed of violent death. Nothing could be more selfish than to be free to, to in, uh, sort of enshrine the fear of death into a principle of societal foundation. Uh, because the fear of death is evidently the most selfish fear because only individuals die. Uh, and indeed, I may, to be, to, be, uh, to be mean about it, we all have lost rel- people we love and so on and so forth, but there still is a f- fundamental difference. Between watching someone die and dying yourself, uh, and uh, you, one thing that no one can share with anybody else is his or her death. Heidegger says this beautifully. When Heidegger says the most, what is most distinctive about what is most me, is my death. What is most mine is my death. Think about that as a parody of the Greek notion of know thyself, gnōti auton. Know thyself when you say, I know, if I truly know myself as what I am, I am death. Kojev said that too. And what Kojev's point is, of course, is that uh, uh, for, the, for most of us, self interest is self preservation. We, pre- we spend our entire lives organizing things to enhance and extend our domination over certain things or to maintain ourselves in, in life, period. And Kojev says, self-preservation, which we might call, or the the capacity to preserve oneself, to protect oneself, and so on and so forth, uh, to gain, to gain wealth or whatever, honors, these are all modes of self-preservation, all selfish. And do they make us free? Because if, in fact, it's our urge to be free of death, it's our animal urge, animal uh, urge to preserve ourselves, be free of death, are we really free? Is this bourgeois freedom really freedom or the most abject servitude? Servitude and fear of death. So kozhev says, and he's got long religious roots for this, that the true saint, the true nobleman, is the one who most resists self-interest, most resists the temptation to, uh, to exert oneself over others, to consider one's own life more important than others, to survive. And everyone survives at the cost of somebody else. Sorry, that's the way things are. And Khrushchev says that they, that thus, when Khrushchev talks about suicide, uh, what he's saying is the truly most human act is to refute the rule of animal self-interest, as he will call it, or the refute of uh, the, 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 the rule of self-preservation. And the act of suicide for in that sense is the most Honestly, free human act—the freedom from our animality, the freedom to our servitude to our animality, no matter how we might dress it up—and and that is what he's fundamentally saying. And it's a much more powerful argument than some people might give it credit for. Of course, Khrushchev says it in a funny way because he knows people will dismiss it. Because the bourgeois mind is going to dismiss that. It's going to say, "Oh, I'm fine. I'm I'm getting better every day." Uh, all this nonsense that we tell ourselves uh especially now uh, days when you know there's the what is the seventy is the new fifty and eighty five is the new thirty four or the one hundred and ten is the new <laughs> ninety uh with this 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 obsession with uh survival and uh and uh with extending one's physical which is all selfish and self interested uh uh Koshchev put challenges that and says that human beings to the extent that we we are we are engaged in the pursuit of self-preservation. Are we human or are we beast? And of course, this is a very ancient Christian theme. Uh, what the one of the greatest enemies of self-interest in the modern era is Luther. Now remember, Luther, Luther doesn't give you works. Luther doesn't. You can be as nice as you want in the world, and you'll never be sure you'll be saved. Uh, Luther is one of the most radical. Opponents of this notion of self-aggrandizement, selfishness, self—the uh, the self, self, me, me, me—which is the individual, the animal wanting to say, "I'm going to survive." And he said, "Is that freedom or is that servitude?" That's Khrushchev's argument, I think, fundamentally, and I think it's an argument worthy of consideration.
1: Hmm. I'm not sure I agree with him. I think that there's a role of contributing to community, not to sound. I don't know, trite or cliché, but um but not that it's your role to to necessarily argue on on Kuzhev's behalf here with me, but um I think it's a really interesting line of thinking, but I don't know if I agree with him. Um well, but
2: totally a- a- offend the way we think. I mean, uh sorry. I, I, no, I, no. I mean, there, there's a history of this in Russian thought. A deep history of this. And there's a deep history of this in German thought, and particularly with Hegel, uh, because there's the sense of uh, how do you then, if you don't agree with that, fine, we understand, uh, but and how do you regulate human selfishness? How do you make sure? How do you how do you avoid a situation where, uh, just for example, the, let's look at the two extremes: the the Kozhevian extreme, which has got a Christian element, got a Hegelian element but a lot of different elements says that I am most myself when I give myself up to the community. When I live for my community, I live for all, and all live for all. Not just me, because if I'm just doing it, nobody else is doing it, I'm getting stomped on. But that the highest human and the human community is where everyone lives for everybody else, in that sense, Uh, where where the notion of self-interest, in a sense, dissipates And therefore, the notion of authority dissipates. It could be an anarchistic community, as it was in Tolstoy's imagining. It could be a a sort of a Greek, uh, a romanticized Greek uh, uh, city state where, uh, you know, the famous examples they always list are Sparta, where the mother, you know, the famous story. The the mother uh, uh, finds out that uh, her five sons have been killed in a battle and says, and her first question is, but did we win? Uh, And so complete dedication to the state, something that is so offensive to our modern sort of bourgeois, uh, self-interested mentality that I don't even think we would know how to consider it. Uh, And as I might have mentioned, I I didn't mention now, but uh, Kozhev was also very much, and provocatively so, he called himself an orthodox Stalinist. Living in Paris, of course, how nice for him. But what he was getting at in his version of Stalinism would be this sort of complete a state where everyone had given up their self-interest uh, to live together, because he saw the alternative to that is conflict, never-ending conflict. Now, there's the nice side of conflict, which is democracy, where people sort of uh, you know, discuss. It's the infinite committee, which goes very well in Canada, a country that was founded by committee, after all. So you have an infinite, never-ending committee. Uh, or you have the more wicked individuals, like someone like Carl Schmidt, who says, at some point or another, Conflict is always going to break out. Self-interest, either collectively as in a national group or an identity group or something, is always going to break out and it's always going to cause violence. And how do you regulate, therefore? People have been trying to do it for an awfully long time in the modern uh, modern era. How do you regulate uh, selfishness, self-interest, the uh, notion that my uh, uh, my interests are ultimately, I may not say it, and certainly, I wouldn't say because I put the patina of Christian kind, uh, selflessness about it. I would never say that my myself's most important. But in fact, most people act that way. How do you how do you regulate that? That's a question that of course, I've asked, and I think fits in with what you're saying. And I should be quiet and listen and and please. <laughs> no, I
1: think it's a really interesting question coming from somebody who's. Uh who was living in a time in a socialist country where that is the defining
2: characteristic of of their ideal, I suppose. Um, it's a Christian ideal as well. Christians don't yeah. go around saying uh, uh, they don't go extolling selfishness. Uh, and uh, so it's a very deeply Christian ideal. Kojev, who was schooled in Buddhism, also understood that the sense of, he has a remarkable text, a later text, on Kant. And I thought, and, and something that we'll just fit in with our discussion, but it's always struck me as he talks about this notion of uh, the Buddhist sage and what really, and he said a Buddhist sage, and in fact, this would apply to any sage, any saint as uh, one who, who's appears to be more pious, uh, more ascetic than everyone else. And he says, all that does is hide underneath the aid nobility of staying alive and pretending to be a saint. He says every day that saint is appropriating resources to his body, these are of course male because females couldn't be saints, I guess but uh um and uh so he says it, it, this notion of sa- of saintliness is almost parodic because underneath it is hidden the same urge to live, to survive that exists in the meanest of characters, and here it's just hidden up, hidden in a more, under the guise of being more pious. So that shows you that Kojev basically says there that one can only be a saint if one dies hmm. one refuses self which is of course an absurd position, yes, I think, but is it really so absurd so that's I think just gives you another sense of how extreme his argumentation is, but it's also i think when you if you counter him, how do you counter him? What do you say? You say, well, we could certainly uh work through you know, you know the arguments uh, self-interest. Well understood. Uh, it's a traditional capitalist argument. Or we can all learn to, you know, to, 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 to democracy is about compromise, blah, blah, blah. you know, those kinds of things. Sure,
1: all it, the methods for channeling for, for good, that personal interest.
2: Exactly. But,
1: but it's still personal interest. Uh,
2: but maybe personal interest isn't so bad after all. And, I mean, I, I think you have to, I, I, I just think it's an, in this day and age, the kind of argument Kozhev is making is going to become, it's going to be very untimely. To say you're a Stalinist uh, in at the end of our, our, at where we are right now, uh, it might fit because actually Stalin's becoming more popular in China, but definitely in a different way than we we might want to understand it. But to make that, that radical argument is most uncomfortable because it's so against almost all the practices that we uh, deal with every day.
1: So... What I took from the book too um, was that Kojev is basically suggesting that the question of whether or not a personal God exists is kind of moot. Um, is Am I getting that right? I Because I felt like at the end of the day, he's basically just saying um, not only can it not really be known, but that the difference, there's less difference between the theist and the atheist than, than one might imagine. And, and I just kind of brought from that, this idea that, that, um, the question of God's existence is just kind of pointless for him. Uh, it Do you read it that way? Am I getting that right? Um, and also, I want to ask you about um, your own personal response to this work.
2: Well, I, I think it's a marvelous question because I think Kojev considered himself an atheist. Uh, but again, kozhev was the kind of human, kind of person, kind of man that it would be very difficult to know exactly what he did think. And what I like about this treatise, for example, compared to some of his uh, later work, his later work is very, very dogmatic uh, on the surface. Uh, this is, and this, the treatise is not. And it's not dogmatic, it's precisely about the issues that you're mentioning. Uh, I think he has, uh, what what I like about the treatise in terms of, uh, uh, is that it 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 gives due respect to both theist and atheist. Uh, it looks at, uh, and it questions what it does in one way, too, is question, is it possible to really be a theist? And is it possible to be an atheist? It complicates and, tr- and troubles, because uh, if you're an atheist, uh, how can you you, 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 you would have to say that there's no God, there's nothing outside the world, but then you're making a belief. You're, 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 you're in fact, believing that there's nothing out there, and you have no means to prove that belief. Likewise, as a theist, he says, if you're the pure theist or the unqualified theist, you have no way really of proving that your God exists or not. It's clearly an article of faith. You're saying there is an is that is God. If you're the other theist who you said, said, yeah, well, I'll make it a more likely-looking God or more rational God or or a God that I can somehow uh, fit in with uh, to to my uh, worldview more. Uh, And he says some fascinating things about that. Uh, I'll give you just one hint. Uh, He talks about the infinite towards the end. And one way of looking at the difference between the uh, unqualified uh, theist or the theist who believes just in some sort of is, God is pure is, and the theist who believes that God has some sort of relation to us is uh, is to look at the distinction between two notions of the infinite. One, the quantitative infinite, the mathematical infinite, which automatically, because we can all do mathematics, poses some connection between the human mind and the divine mind and the notion of the what they call the qualitative infinite which is much more uh enigmatic i think and suggests uh, a sort of a, a, a boundlessness that we can't even possibly imagine now when kujev talks about the theist those issues are back there and he mentions them in his notes and they they're there uh but at the so he he problematizes theism there's no que- question about uh the what he really asks rationally is god possible Does God as a theist would have to understand God, does it make any sense? Likewise with the atheist, he does the same thing. To say that there is no God and to say that there's nothing, does that make sense? And I think in both cases he comes down to saying, I'm not sure if it does make sense. And therefore underneath the treatise is this notion of what is it in us that makes us posit this other world in the first place? Why do we have to refer to our life in the world by reference to something that is outside of it? Uh, and I think that will go back into sort of the notion of we're trying to grasp this idea of what is the place or what is it where I am not? What is absence? Uh, when I talk about the absence of a relative, where is that person? I mean, these are very simple things, but... I am always struck. Uh, the guy I work with right now, Antonio Lobo Antunes, for example, has portraits of family members everywhere. And he'll say, they're with me. I said, but they're dead. They're absent. He said, no, they're never absent. There's nothing that is absent. I said, well, are they are living in some sort of, he said, well, nobody lives with absence. Absence is just a presence that's, uh, how do you even know? absence is pre- Absence is present. It's always present. These people are present. But I said, the person's dead. And they're not, you know, all those kinds of things I've already said. But the fact is that death, disease, and disappearance all bring up the specter of some other place. Something outside of what we ordinarily deal with. And it forces us into these rather drastic attempts to respond to that absence, which I think Kozhev has enormous, enormous... uh, Nobody would say he's empathetic, but I think he has enormous sympathy for those positions. And this explores them ruthlessly. The philosophical intelligence explores it as ruthlessly as he can, but his sensibility is there. And I mentioned as a final thing just on this is Kozhev uh, being an atheist, claiming he was an atheist and very extravagantly so as he did so many things, loved and was deeply and deeply admired theologians. And one of his very best friends uh, uh, was a theologian, a Catholic theologian. And he said that he always enjoyed spending he, he, he to professors and academics, he always preferred the company of uh, theologians and uh, priests. It says something about him.: that Yeah, is that,
1: that is surprising. Hmm.
2: He had enormous respect for them. as do I, actually, uh, uh, because uh, after all, um, they are dealing with serious issues that many pe- that most of us probably hide from ourselves.
1: Fascinating! What an interesting guy.
2: He is a fascinating guy, and he's dealing with fascinating guys who dealt with those quite like Heidegger and and Hegel and and uh, but anyhow, you I go on.
1: Well, finally, let's talk about the art of translation itself. Uh, how would you define your goals in translating a work like this, and what were some of your biggest challenges with Kojev?
2: Yeah, the art of tra- well, translation, of course, by definition is. Uh, I understand the standard, the cliche now. The humility topos is always translation is impossible, right? So, uh, and I've now, I, I'm not a translator, actually. I basically, most of the work I've done has been on literary scholarship or philosophical scholarship. But for some reason, I ended up translating one treatise on by Schelling. I've translated a novel by Lobo and Tunes, and I translated Kojeb. So three different languages, but all related, German, uh, Russian, and uh, Portuguese uh, one, but different genres, one a novel. The treatise is written in a very unusual style, Khrushchev's treatise. And, of course, the uh, uh, a, uh, I guess I have to say an outstanding example of German prose of the first part of the 19th century with Schelling. Uh, and what do you do? I, 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 it is true. Translation is pretty much, if you want to talk about some things, uh, especially the music of the language and so on and so forth, it can be very important. It's virtually impossible in some places. And yet, I think, as someone who's read a lot of translations, how is it that uh, there are books like War and Peace, uh, there are other books that come across in about every language I've read them in. Uh, So there must be something there. And so I try to uh, convey, to the best I can, a fairly literal version of the original. Now, literal, of course, is extremely, well, it's an Translation is an academic discipline, so there's, in, with academics, it's always the same thing. It's like 10 dogs, uh, you know, trying to bite the bone off a small animal. Uh, so if you say translation is literal, you know someone's going to come out and say that. How can you mean literal? That means there's got to be some faith to an original text that you don't know is there because there's no third person to judge, right? So between languages, uh, who's going to tell me that my understanding of language B is right when it's, I have to deal with the people in language B? When there's no C, who can judge? No, no third so I, we, I get that. But I, so what I just try to do is take the syntax, of the original language, the best I can do and convey it and the, and the words convey them the best I can in English. Um, we, so that would be called a literalist approach. Some people would say it's terrible and awful. Other people would praise it. But I like to put people in a position that if they know the language or even or, or, or if they don't know the language, pardon me, or if even if they know it moderately, the translation can help them. Uh, in either way, to have some sort of, what I would say, uh, accurate uh, transcription of the original, with all the flaws that that may imply. Now, on the bigger side, with Kojev, this particular work was extremely difficult, but extremely interesting as well. Because one thing Kojev does, of course, the terminology is fanciful, because he's playing and parodying Heidegger, who uses a lot of, uh, Heidegger's an extremely, extremely different author to to translate he's almost untranslatable and he makes himself so because he uh, heidegger uses certain aspects of the German language uh, and pushes them to their hilt and makes it almost un you almost have to learn German to 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 move into that area to dedicate yourself to heideggerian thought uh, which is a, a not a very generous gesture in my mind Khrushchev takes the opposite approach which would which would befit a internationalist and someone who's more democratic that way is he produces in this treatise a syntax of absolute simplicity. He takes the some of the great uh, qualities of uh, the Russian language to create almost a mathematical, pure, syntactical structure that is actually a challenge to translate, but creates this wonderful, simple logic that I think you could translate into almost any language. So it's a really intriguing attempt to create some sort of uh, what the Germans, I'll be pretentious for a moment, the Ursprache, you know, sort of this original language, uh, what uh, I think Steven Pinker calls mentalese, but it's sort of a, a code that can be easily or at least very serviceably translated uh, through uh, across different idioms. It's a fascinating experiment, and quite the, the opposite from Heidegger. Heidegger, you Heidegger says philosophy speaks two languages, German and Greek, and forget the rest. Uh, right. Well, he's he's very direct about that, uh, and it, 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 that tells you where Heidegger's coming from. And Heidegger's interest in poetry, poetry is inherently nationalistic and divisive because poetry is always going to take advantage of the particular qualities of the language, musical qualities, syntactical qualities. Where Kuzhev fights against that, creating a rather plain and ugly syntax in Russian, but it's marvelous in one sense to translate because he's trying to create almost a mathematically uh ordered language translation matrix base a basis from which you can you can you can uh communicate uh from Russian to other languages with relative ease it's quite fascinating
1: yeah that's a really interesting idea. For the politics behind language usage um, living in Quebec, uh, I've been introduced to all kinds of ideas about uh, the politics of language that living growing up in a unilingual area we didn't you know never really crossed the mind but um but the idea that you would think ahead to your own translation and the choices that you would make for those ends that's that's a really interesting idea
2: Well, you have to understand though that Kojev was a guy who wrote with complete comfort, in at least three languages. Mm. I mean, I've read him in German and French. His French is superb. It's got some awkward characteristics to it just because he learned a sort of snooty Russian uh, private school French. Uh, But his German is very, very, is, is, is wonderful. And his Russian also can be, it can be sloppy, but it can also be quite wonderful. He was so, he moved between these languages with complete ease. And I think you'll agree, and you make a wonderful point, Uh, When you talk about if you grew up in a monolingual world as opposed to the world Kojev grew up in, which was by from his earliest childhood, was multilingual, it's fundamentally different how you see things. Mm -hmm. Fundamentally different. And I think that uh, I don't want to go on. I'm sorry, but it, it is so important that if you know various languages, your mind is very different from the person who only knows one. And it's and and that Kozhev would be thinking about how he'd move this treatise into various languages, I think, would be characteristic of anyone who works in a series of different languages. Uh, I mean, I have an everyday reality where I work in at least. I mean, I'm probably I, I have I live in the in, the English with my family, Portuguese almost all day long outside the family, Russian with other people, German with other people, French, and I, I you know I I have a number. And and I live in, the, I even learned enough Chinese to because I spent some time in China, I'm familiar with quite a few different languages. And it's just a fundamentally different reality. And you see this in Kojev in and this attempt, to, the, the flexibility, this this way of, of moving in his argumentation has a lot to do, I think, with the kind of flexibilities that are afforded to someone who has moved through a series of different languages because you never look at the world the same way because your world is so vastly different. Pardon me, mm. That's not like a advertising campaign for learn languages.
1: <laughs> no, no, it's good. No, I, um, I come to French as an adult. And so the little bit of experience that I have with that, um, I would totally agree with you. I'd love to be able to speak more languages, but I find at this point, just focusing on French is, uh, mm-hmm. is taking up enough energy,
2: but. that's <laughs> certainly well, enough, right? I mean, I, I, I admire anyone who wants to, who tries to, because in fact, it was interesting. Uh, this 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 fellow I was mentioning to—he was over here on Saturday night, and we were talking. He's a translator, uh, and he speaks Hebrew and uh, Spanish, Portuguese, uh, German, a few other languages. Uh, and we were just talking about uh, because you hear about these people, uh, Carolyn. They say, "Oh, yes, I speak uh, nine languages," and I know from my experience, and you know, having been in institutions, all kinds of institutions with very gifted language learners. Uh, and people who had a lot of linguistic background that that's utter nonsense and he said to me you know you know one of the things that's so hard is you might have three languages or four but it's hard to maintain just two even or just you know one because you're always struggling with your own language English after all and you're additionally always struggling with another language always trying to work it through and it's true you've never finished so I understand exactly what you mean and, you know, if I have to go back and speak French here sometimes, because sometimes, because Antonio, for example, switches from French, Spanish to, in a microsecond, and I have to go back and forth through these different things. And sometimes I'm very slow at doing it. Sometimes it works well. But I'm always, always reminded of the challenge, even after having years of French and knowing all, and having spent, you know, having done lots of, of stuff, and, and I'm you know, certified in Russian and everywhere you could be. But it's still, you go back and it's, it's difficult. And it's always, so it's a really intriguing thing. Anyhow, I apologize for going on again. No, Another no. Canadian story. Yeah, yeah. Canadian content, you know? That's right. 25, 25, 25,
1: 25. The Canadian connection, as we would say on right. CBC. Exactly. <clears throat> well, Jeff, I've taken up a lot of your time. I want to thank you very much for agreeing to come on the show. I think it was a really great, interesting conversation. Uh, but before we go, tell us what you're currently working on. You've mentioned your Portuguese author there a little bit. Uh, tell us a little more
2: well i'll just say, i'll i'll plug then uh because he's uh i just finished a translation of his uh second latest the novel he wrote uh, that came out here in 2017 um he uh, spent 3 years in the war in angola and this book talks a lot about the war in angola it's a really it's a very dark book but he's a he's a he's a revolutionized the portuguese literary language it's a fascinating figure and the book is called until stones become lighter than water and uh yale uh university press will uh is publishing that book and it'll come out in the spring so that's one thing um so i translate that book so i end up with another translation but i'm working on a book on 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 narrative right now and on uh uh, uh that deals with Tolstoy, and Lobo- and, Lobo- and the notions of what we use narratives for not just as you know there's been a great deal of study in the 20th century about structure of narratives and how narratives work and so on and so forth And this book is oriented towards a very simple question, which is why do we have narratives in the first place? And one of the things that questions I want to pose in the book, which I think is a a interesting question, at least I hope it is, is how we use narratives to free, to flee, pardon me, to flee the present, to flee what's right, to flee a present that is always sort of impinging on us with such force. We have narratives going to the past, narratives the future, all ways of getting away from this present that. Aristotle was a nothing or a tonun, uh The the you know the the all the various definitions the attempts to define the present, and that's one of the questions. That's one of the leading questions in that book. So that's a book that I'll be working on, and I guess I'll hope to finish next year. And there's other projects, but those are the main. Uh, 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 the, the projects at the, at the moment.
1: Oh, that's, so. that's really fascinating. Um, the role of narrative for human psychology and just people in general throughout history is a question that's dear to my heart as I'm a, uh, an English literature, uh, PhD, but or right. student, but, um, but maybe you'll consider coming back to the channel with that book after you've published it. Cause we do have a channel here for literary studies. So.
2: Well, that would be, that would be, I would thoroughly enjoy that. And I've, I've been fascinated Yes, by narrative. Uh, I work with a friend who's doing a very interesting book on uh, uh, how the connection between narrative and salvation. Oh, interesting! Uh, kind of the salvific nature of, of of narratives. This is a Heideggerian point, actually, but it's a very interesting sense of how we build narratives to give us a, a sense of order and and so on and so forth. Uh, to give you an example, I mean, from from Russian literature again, because I did a lot of work on Tolstoy. But one of the most fascinating things about Tolstoy who uh, really deals with narrative in a lot of interesting ways. Uh, it's just that narrative as explanation for things that we otherwise cannot explain. It's a very characteristic aspect of Tolstoy's uh, a War and Peace, for example. The characters do things, they pick up stuff, and they, and, they, and they function, and only afterwards do they try to figure out exactly why they did something or, wh- or what it is uh, via narrative. And they use narratives to make sense of their lives, and the narratives inevitably kind of direct in a certain way that they often change. Simplify, direct, but as a way of making sense of things, having a a, a salvific aspect to it as well, because you're saved from the sheer chaos, again, of the present or the chaos of uh, of, uh, that, that, in fact, is our most immediate experience probably every day. And we cut things out automatically based on narratives that we structure, right? Or narratives that we, we base our everyday life uh, upon that blind us to what's going on often. Not. Well, they open up a lot, but they also blind us to other things. So it's, it's very interesting. Yes. Mm. Sorry.
1: No, I love that. Michael. I love that. Uh, do, uh, do come back for that book. Uh But I will thank you again for being on the show today. Uh, The book was excellent, and I'm sure our audience will agree. And um, I was really glad to have a chance to chat with you about it in person.
2: Well, thank you very much for for having me. Thank you for your excellent questions. And uh, it's been a great, great pleasure for me.
1: Good. Well, thanks so much. I'll say goodbye.
2: Okay. Bye-bye.
1: I want to thank you for listening to New Books in Secularism today, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. Once again, I'm Carrie Lynn Evans, and I've been speaking with Jeff Love about his translation of Kojev's Atheism. If you enjoyed this podcast, please write us a positive review on iTunes, post about us on social media, or tell a friend. The New Books Network is a not-for-profit organization, so all the buzz that you can help us generate goes a long way to supporting this work. I'm also interested in hearing from you about your thoughts on the podcast and the material we cover. My question for you this week is about your reaction to Khajev's work. Do you think he was right about the similarities he saw between the atheist and the theist, for example? Or what about his notion of suicide as a radical expression of freedom? Hit me up on Twitter. I'd be interested to hear your thoughts. You can find me there at Carrie Lindland. That's at C-A-R-R-I-E-L-Y-N-N-L-A-N-D. Or do you have a book you'd like covered on one of our shows? Contact us through our website, newbooksnetwork.com. Also, be sure to like the New Books in Secularism channel on Facebook and Twitter, where you'll see every time we post a new interview. In the meantime, I'll wish you an au revoir until my next conversation about New Books in Secularism.